Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. We're in Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, sorry. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let us rejoice and give praise to our Father. God, we praise you for your amazing, incomprehensible love. This mystery that though we were dead and unworthy, you chose us to be your bride. We praise you that Christ is the head of the church. He is its founder, its sustainer, its shepherd, and its guide. We praise you that Christ's authority is not one of oppression, but is such that he came down to us as a servant and gave his life for us. On the cross, he paid for all of our blemishes and wrinkles and utter unfaithfulness towards you. And not only has he made us spotless, but he has made us a part of his very own body. He is like a shepherd who takes his sheep into his arms and cares for them, nourishing them and finding delight in them. We are so unworthy of this, Lord. We know that we are weak, and we often feel so far from this image of the spotless and blameless bride. But we thank you that Christ became the spotless and blameless one for us. And we believe that one day he will present us pure and holy as a bride adorned for her husband. We praise you that our past was secured when Christ saved us, that our future is secure because he will present us as his bride, and our present is even secure because you promised to keep us and to sanctify us. And Lord, we long for that day when we will see you as you are. We long for and eagerly expect that day when all your church will be gathered, those who have gone before us, those who will come after us should you choose to tarry, and those who have saved from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And together we will say hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, and we will be glad and rejoice and give you glory because the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And we praise you that this future is sure. We also thank you as we wait for this to be fully realized. We thank you that you have given us the gift of marriage, and it is a picture and reminder of Christ and his bride. And we need this reminder because we are so prone to forget you and to run after other lovers and you graciously give us this reminder. Though we are unfaithful, you are always faithful. We praise you that you allow us to experience a taste of how you are with your bride through marriage, that wives get to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ, and that husbands get to love their wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself for her, and that even those of us who are single can see this beautiful picture. We do not miss out on the gift of marriage, but get to experience it now through the church, and we'll experience it in full at the marriage feast to come. 
On that day, we all will experience the perfect marriage that none of us will experience on earth. All of our longings and expectations will be fully and finally satisfied. Thank you for this unfathomable and undeserved gift. So as we think about marriage this morning, use it to point us anew to who you are so that we walk away this morning knowing and loving you and each other more. Turn our eyes upon you, Lord. You are worthy of it. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Good news, I don't have to give my talk now because Samantha just did it for me. <laughs> so when we started planning this series, Walking with God in various seasons of life, different situations, different relationship sets, and particularly for this class, Haley Meyer, um, she particularly wanted teachers who've been married for more than 25 years, but as I did not get married in preschool, that very obviously does not describe me. Um, but I'm really thankful to say that what I'm going to be covering today doesn't require any marriage experience at all. Um, the focus of this first section of three that we have this morning is on the biblical theology of marriage, or in other words, how marriage fits into the redemptive storyline of scripture from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And if you want to learn more about what biblical theology is more broadly, I would love to point you back to Jennifer Giddens' class that she did at Institute back in um, October of 2019, and even two years ago, and you can find that recording either on our podcast or on our website. So as we approach what the Bible has to say about marriage this morning, I would love to ground us with this quote from um, retired pastor and biblical scholar Ray Ortland. He says, marriage is the category for the gospel. It is the wraparound theme that brackets the entire Bible. The Bible as a whole is God's message of marital love to his people who will receive him. So when we think about marriage of the Bible, the first thing that I want to establish this morning is that when it speaks of marriage, it's not primarily interested in the practicalities of marriage between humans. The Bible's primary focus when it speaks of marriage is on marriage as the metaphor for the relationship between God and his people, and only as a secondary focus that flows out of that first one. The Bible's then interested in how God's people live toward one another in such marriages as he may give them. So the main point for our first section today is this. The Bible is the story of a God who weds himself to his people forever. The Bible is the story of a God who weds himself to his people forever. And we're going to start at the very beginning in the book of Genesis. So marriage enters the storyline of the Bible on its second page. In Genesis 1, we see God create man and woman in his image, and he gives them a joint task. But we aren't given the specifics of their relationship beyond that on the first page. But in Genesis 2, we get more specific. So if you'll look at Genesis 2, 15 through 25 with me. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat of it, you will certainly die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. 
Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman because she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked yet felt no shame. So in the second chapter of the Bible, we find the first marriage, and it's a perfect marriage full of tender love and joy. But have you ever stopped to wonder why that's where God chose to begin his story? Like, why there of all the places? But he doesn't actually tell us in Genesis why, so we have to go deeper into his story to find out. And so while on the second page of the Bible, we see love and joy in marriage, on the third page, we see things collapse into something that feels a lot more familiar. As the man and the woman fall prey to the temptations of sin for the first time, their marriage is one of the first things that's impacted. Pain and strife will now infect what had been perfect and sweet. The man and the woman are banished together east of Eden, away from God's presence. And as they begin to obey God's command to fill the world with more people, we see the pattern of men and women marrying continue. People keep doing that. But the patterns that we see aren't very pretty. We mostly get glimpses into broken marriages in the rest of Genesis. Um, Just a few examples would be Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar, Jacob, Rachel, and Leah, and then the very alarming and odd story of Tamar and her husband and her father-in-law in in Genesis 38. But then leaving Genesis, we enter the book of Exodus, and we follow the amazing story of God setting his people free from their enslavement to the Egyptian pharaoh. And God leads them to Mount Sinai, where he delivers to Moses a very important set of moral laws that his people are to live by, which are called the Ten Commandments. And so out of these ten laws, at least two of them have to do with marriage. So if you'll look with me at Exodus 20, 14 through 17, we have don't commit adultery, and then we have don't covet your neighbor's house or their wife or their servants or their animals or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Don't do it. But that's actually just the beginning. In the rest of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, we find that God gives many, many laws for the way spouses are to treat one another, punishment for adultery and rape, consequences for sex outside of marriage, and more. And often these laws have to do with things that are wrong or even evil, and so these laws can be perceived as negative on the whole. But on the contrary, what I want us to see is that all of these laws are making one thing really clear to us. And that is that God cares very deeply about the way marriage is to be conducted. But why? Why does he care so much? Well, as we read through the first few books of the Old Testament, a theme starts to take shape. We begin to see that marriage does not exist neutrally in the Bible. It's not just part of the cultural backdrop. In fact, it's not portrayed as a human institution at all. It's portrayed as a divine institution that exists for a specific purpose. And that's why God gives his people regulations for it. As we move through the Old Testament, we begin to see that marriage is the operative metaphor for God's relationship to his people. And that God intends for the lives and marriages of his people to reflect this much more expansive, all-consuming reality. And though many of us might miss it entirely as we read um, in pieces over time, the clearest portrayal of this in the section we're talking about comes from Exodus 19 through 34. And in these chapters, we find um, a very dramatic marriage story between God and his people. In Exodus 19 through 24, 
a marriage ceremony is conducted as part of the covenant God is making with his people. Then in chapters 25 through 31, when Moses is on Mount Sinai with God for 40 days, God gives him instructions for how to build his tabernacle, which is to be the safe and intimate home where God will dwell with his people, his new bride. But even while God is teaching Moses about how to build this home, Israel, his new bride, is cheating on him with an idol, the golden calf, as we read in Exodus 32. And in Exodus 33, in response to this unfaithfulness from his people, God functionally divorces them. And he says, I will not go with you into the land. You will not have my presence. But in an astonishing twist and reversal in chapter 34, God remarries his people by making a new covenant with them. And it's here in Exodus 34 that we find one of the most quoted and cherished descriptions of God's love for his people. The Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. So in the second book of the Bible, we see so clearly that God has wed himself to his people forever, and even their sin cannot part them from him. And as we leave Exodus and move into the books of history in the Old Testament, we start to see examples of the worst kinds of human marriage come out. Abuse, neglect, coldness, polygamy, hatred between spouses. In Judges, it's pretty much all bad. If you ever just really want to feel bad about everything, go read Judges. Um, In the books of Samuel, the Samuel books and Kings and Chronicles, we see just a litany of marriages damaged by sin. We see David and his varying relationships with his six wives. We see Solomon and his 1,000 wives and concubines. We see whole marriages bent on evil, like Ahab and Jezebel. And we start to see as well that marriages, just in some of those cases I mentioned, they often lead God's people into idolatry. As Israel's kings marry foreign women out of either lust or a desire to form political alliances, those women who serve other gods draw the hearts of the kings away from the Lord. And as we know, as the heart of the king goes, so goes the nation. But the history books aren't totally wretched when it comes to marriage. We get a few bright spots, most notably in the book of Ruth. In Ruth, we see tender care, redemption, and hope brought about in the marriage of Ruth and Boaz. And in fact, some of what we see there serves as a prophetic foreshadowing of another kinsman redeemer who will emerge later in the Bible story. Marriage doesn't get much discussion in the Psalms, but the books of Proverbs and Song of Songs make up for it. The book of Proverbs is full of wise sayings about and advice for relationships, including marriage. Some examples from Proverbs 12.4, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. Proverbs 21.9, better to live on the corner of a roof than to share a house with a nagging wife. And then we arrive at Song of Songs, or the Song of Solomon, which often gets less than its fair share of attention and conversations about the Bible and marriage in particular, partly because it is so narrowly focused on sexual anticipation and desire, delight and joy between a newly married man, who's called Solomon in the book, and his wife, Shulamith, or the Shulamite. And so here's just one example um, of what the Song of Songs has to offer us from chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. You have captured my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captured my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How delightful your caresses are, my sister, my bride. Your caresses are much better than wine, and the fragrance of your perfume than any balsam. 
Your lips drip sweetness like the honeycomb, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. And that's not even the, you know, most explicit stuff, let me tell you. This depiction of romantic and sexual love is in fact so explicit that for several generations, Christians could not handle the idea that this was about two actual people. So they decided that it was purely an allegory about the intimacy between Christ and his church. And like many of our interpretations about scripture, it's not exactly wrong, but it's not exactly right either. Many biblical scholars today agree that it's both. Biblical scholar Craig Glickman describes it this way. Since the song portrays a perfect love, it is natural for the songwriter to compare it to the love of God for Israel. Solomon's love is like God's love for his people, and Shulamith's love is like a response from those people to God. We discover that there is a bliss in married love that is reflective of the greater love believers experience as the bride of Christ. As the book's imagery informs us of romantic love, it also helps us anticipate the full consummation of our relationship with Christ when he returns for his bride. But it's actually not in Song of Songs, but rather in the books of prophecy, that the theme of God's unquenchable, passionate, jealous, marital love for his people is brought to a fevered pitch, at least in the Old Testament. We see this theme portrayed positively, like in these verses from Isaiah 54, 5 through 7. Indeed, your husband is your maker. His name is the Lord of armies, and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He is called the God of the whole earth, for the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and wounded in spirit, a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. I deserted you for a brief moment, but I will take you back with abundant compassion. How moving is that description of God's love for us? But what happens when the Lord flips the metaphor on us from that of tender love to the deep betrayal of infidelity? The prophet Jeremiah in particular has a lot to say on this theme from Jeremiah 3. If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? You, that is Israel, have played the whore with many lovers. And would you return to me, declares the Lord? Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see where have you not been ravished. By the waysides you have sat awaiting lovers like an Arab in the wilderness. You have polluted the land with your vile whoredom. If Israel's portrayal of the Lord's abundant compassion for us stirs our hearts, then Jeremiah's blunt portrayal of our unfaithfulness must turn our stomachs. He describes God's people as not just flirting casually with unfaithfulness, but rather seeking it out time and time again. How often have each of us ignored the Lord, instead sitting by the proverbial wayside waiting for, longing for something more interesting and satisfying to come our way? Often God called his prophets to live in ways that physically and visibly enacted spiritual invisible truths. And he gave perhaps the most dramatic and painful of these tasks to his prophet Hosea. He called Hosea to marry a prostitute to illustrate God's faithful love to his unfaithful people. From Hosea 1-2, the Lord said to Hosea, go take for yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land committed great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. And Hosea does all of that, but later in the book he must at the Lord's command go buy her back again 
after she returns to prostitution in Hosea 3.1. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. The message of Hosea is the message of the whole Bible, that God will stop at nothing to secure his people for himself in love, even when they reject him in the most excruciating and sinful ways. In Hosea 2, 16 through 20, we see this. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creatures of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. The prophets get a rap for being filled with judgment and wrath, but even here, we see something that we can scarcely believe, that when God's people will not and cannot love him as they should, God himself will do the work. He will bring them to himself. He will purify them. He will make them faithful in his own faithfulness. And in that last phrase, you shall know the Lord, that word know includes sexual intimacy, complete knowledge, deep familiarity. God will stop at nothing to be one with his people. But at this point in the biblical storyline, we have no idea how he's going to do that. That must have sounded impossible to the Israelites at that time. For thousands of years, his people have betrayed him and abandoned him and been unfaithful. So what could possibly change that? Well, only God himself. And so in the book of Matthew, our Savior finally enters the scene in the most embarrassing and unthinkable way, especially given all we've just established. He's born to an unwed mother, one who appears by all counts to have broken God's laws for sex and marriage. Praise God that our Savior is not ashamed to be associated with sinners and outcasts. And as Jesus taught in the course of his ministry, he often used imagery of weddings, especially as he drew closer to his death. Two notable accounts were in Matthew 22, where he tells the parable of the wedding feast, and in Matthew 25, the parable of the ten virgins who are waiting for the bridegroom. And in both of these parables, the bridegroom represents Christ. In John 3 as well, John the Baptist also refers to Jesus as the bridegroom and those that are being saved as the bride, John 3, 28 through 29. And there are more places we don't have to, time to look at, but suffice it to say that thread from the Old Testament of God as the husband of his people is clearly continued in Christ in the Gospels. And that actually is some of what makes some of the New Testament instruction for marriage quite shocking to the people of the day and to us now. So in Matthew 19, the Pharisees approach Jesus to ask him what he thinks about divorce. So if you want to turn with me to Matthew 19, we're going to pick up in verse 4 as he starts to answer them. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, 
Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, except for sexual immorality. Or I'm sorry, I skipped a line. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive the saying, but only those to whom it is given. While it was the Pharisees who initially approached Jesus with this question about divorce, his own disciples seemed the most shocked by his answer. And they say, Jesus, that's too hard. If we can't get divorced, we might as well not get married. And Jesus says, you're right, a little bit. He seems to indicate that the single life, such as he himself lived, is better for those who love him. And Paul goes on to say something extremely similar in 1 Corinthians 7. In it, he says multiple times that it's better for Christians to remain single, if at all possible. But he makes an allowance for those of us who are weak-willed, he says, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. In 1 Corinthians 7, 9. And within the bounds of marriage that he's allowing, he and other biblical authors, they start to build this new standard for Christian marriage that defied the cultural norms of their own time and that still defy our, our cultural norms today, both secular and Southern Baptist. Such as divorce is strictly not permitted except under the conditions of sexual infidelity or abuse and abandonment. Marriage is to be lifelong to reflect God's unbreakable covenant with his people. Husbands and wives do not have authority over their own bodies because their bodies actually belong to one another, 1 Corinthians 7, 4. Husbands are to love their wives, care for them, especially spiritually, and understand them. We see that in Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, and 1 Peter 3. And wives are to submit willingly to their husbands and respect them. Ephesians 5, again, Colossians 3, 1 Peter 3. So those last two points about husbands and wives bring us to really what's the crux of the Bible's instruction for marriage. And so if you want to turn with me to Ephesians 5 that Courtney read for us earlier, this is an extremely familiar passage to all of us. And here Paul gives some of the instructions that I just described, and we tend to focus mostly on the imperative part of the instructions, what we're to do. And we tend to spend less time contemplating the indicative or why it is that we're to do it. But if all we get out of Ephesians 5 is what's commonly referred to as headship and submission, then we've missed the whole point. So read with me starting in verse 24, I believe. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. And in the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are all members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. He says, this mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. So all the way back when we were talking about Genesis, I noted that the Bible opens with marriage, but we're not told why. 
But here, Paul quotes Genesis 2. Did you catch that? He quotes the passage that we've read already. And it's as if he's saying, in case you haven't gotten it yet, it's been about Christ all along. Christ loves us maritally, passionately, romantically, and we submit to him joyfully and willingly in everything because what else could we do for someone so wonderful? This passage is the clearest crescendo in the Bible's teaching on the purpose of human marriage. Human marriage is not to make us moral people who don't have sex with others or to make us good citizens with extra tax benefits. And it's not even just to bear children and raise them in families. God intends marriage to show the world and to show one another the eternal faithful love of God to his people. Marriage in the Bible is cosmic. It's eternal and all-consuming, but it is primarily about your heavenly marriage, not your earthly one. And the beautiful thing is, as Samantha prayed for us earlier, we all have that heavenly marriage, even if we never have an earthly one, or even if we have one and it's taken from us. Ray Ortland says again, single people are married forever. Married people are the metaphor for the real marriage. We have all been swept away into this glorious, unseen reality which the scene of human marriage helps us to imagine and perceive and savor and appreciate and cherish and revere. That's why people get married, to help us see that reality. And I think two really important practical things fall out of that. So one is to anyone here who thinks of marriage primarily as a means for companionship or status or children, if you got married for those reasons or you want to get married primarily for those horizontal reasons, then you have entirely misunderstood the point of Christian marriage. And I promise you that you're going to be very unsatisfied and very unhappy. Christians are to enter into marriage because we know that we can display God's love for his people in the way we sacrificially give love to someone else. And then the second thing that I think we see is this is why God gives rules for what marriage is and is not. If human marriages form millions of living pictures for how God loves his people, then doesn't it make sense that he would give some parameters for what that's to look like? And this is why humans don't have the authority to define or change what marriage means. We don't get to set the terms for marriage because we don't get to set the terms for God's relationship to his people. So this cosmic, glorious, eternally real marriage is so important that it turns out it's the climax of the whole Bible and it hasn't happened yet. In the final pages of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, we arrive finally at long last at the great wedding feast of the Lamb. So if you'll turn with me to Revelation 19. And I believe we're going to pick up right in verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a vast multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. Because he has judged the notorious prostitute who corrupted the earth with her sexual immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his servants that was on her hands. A second time they said, hallelujah, her smoke ascends forever and ever. Then the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and they worshiped God who seated on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. 
a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all his servants and the ones who fear him, both small and great. Then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters and like the rumbling of loud thunder, saying hallelujah, because our Lord God, the almighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory because the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the lamb. And he also said to me, these words of God are true. One day, when Christ returns and reunites heaven and earth, those of us who are his will really experience the culmination of this picture we have of God as the groom and his people as the bride. And regardless of whether the Lord ever plans for you to be married, of how long he permits you to be married, of how happy or difficult your marriage is, one day, every last one of us will be embraced by our maker, our husband, the one called faithful and true, in full oneness and joy forever. The best that we could ever hope for in earthly marriages seems small and pale and sad beside the fullness that is promised us in that marriage. So in brief, from the beginning to the end, this is what our God has told us about what marriage means for God's people. These words of God are true. And I hope they've lifted your soul and your eyes in hope and love to the one who calls you his. And with that, I'm gonna hand it over to Debbie. Let us pray. Dear God, may the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Good morning, my sisters in Christ. It's good to be together. I'm Debbie Wright, and I'm married to Mr. Wright. Is that not every girl's dream? <laughs> Um, Danny and I both grew up in North Little Rock, but we did not know each other. If we had met growing up, he would have been Mr. Wrong. And when we did meet at the U of A, he was Mr. Wrong because Danny was not a believer in Jesus and he had already experienced a failed marriage. But God, two little words that makes such a difference. But God saved him his freshman year in law school, and I got to witness God change him, transform him, and make him a new creation in Christ. It was fascinating to watch, and it was a joy and wonder to behold. So to make a long story short, God turned Mr. Wrong into Mr. Right. And we have been married 46 years, and I have to confess, I have loved being married to Mr. Danny Wright. On the board, there's a scripture, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Uh, we used that in our wedding because it was pretty simple, but our heart's desire was to make God first 
in our marriage, and then we would just trust him to hold us together. Today we are looking at marriage in the context of the Bible, the written word of God, infallible, without error, inspired by the Holy Spirit. You can trust God's word. The Bible begins with God creating everything, including man, woman, and marriage, which brings us to my topic of brokenness and redemption in marriage. So you have a handout. In part one, there's a place for notes. Uh, let's take a brief look at God's beautiful design of marriage, beginning in Genesis 1:27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then Genesis 2, 24 through 25. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and the wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. And so I want to just diagram. There's a place on the last page for a diagram. But we have God here. And what did we see? God was the creator. He was eternal before all things in time, position, authority. Uh, he, it was the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And he creates, what did it say? Male and female. Two very important truths for the time that we are living today. And we, he created them in his image and he united them in marriage. Scripture describes God's beautiful design for marriage where husband and wife experience oneness with each other and oneness with God. They are living in a garden prepared for them, blessed, naked, unashamed, and walking with God. Part two, but something happens in the marriage of Adam and Eve. Turn to Genesis 3, 6 through 7. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. The eyes of both were opened and they realized they were naked and made coverings for themselves. Scripture goes on to tell us that Adam and Eve's sin resulted in a tragic change in their relationship. So, in our diagram, this oneness with God is broken, both for the man and for the woman. 
and they experience a brokenness in their relationship with one another. They find themselves in a marriage where they are now uncomfortable with each other, full of shame, afraid, hiding from God, cursed, and banished from the garden. Before we leave this passage in Genesis, let's take a closer look at the woman. Who saw the fruit and concluded that it was good, pleasing, and desirable? The woman did. And was she satisfied with eating it alone? No, she gave it to her husband. Never underestimate your influence over your husband. As wise, we must make sure that we use this powerful pull that we have on our husbands to follow the Lord Jesus and not what we desire. It is ironic that in God's design, we are to be our husband's helper. But Eve did not help Adam follow the Lord. Instead, she led him away from the Lord in disobedience. Ask the Lord to help you be the godly influence on your husband, the helper he created you to be for him. So how do we find the answer to brokenness in marriage? You know, even my mama told me to never marry a man thinking I could change him, and I believed her. So how does a man and a woman experience oneness in marriage in our fallen state? Is there any hope? Thankfully, God has provided a way. So part three, salvation, God's redemptive plan for marriage. In Matthew 19, 5 through 6, Jesus quotes God's beautiful design of marriage from Genesis. And he adds this statement to it. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Therefore, Jesus confirms in the New Testament that God's original design for oneness in marriage is still possible. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, we can hear the echo of the garden in this passage, but also the hope we have in the redemptive work of God. And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, there's those two little words again that make all the difference. But God, being rich in his mercy, because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man can boast.
So the answer to this dilemma of brokenness in marriage and for all of life is Jesus Christ and the good news of the gospel. So I ask you today, have you repented of your sins and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you been made alive in Christ through his gift of grace? If not, scripture tells us that today is the day of salvation. And I urge you to put your trust and faith in Jesus. So, when you do that, something really fantastic happens. When you are in Christ, that brokenness between you and the, and the Lord is complete again. You are made whole in Christ. And um, so today in your diagram, if... If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you are in Christ today, then you can put your name here. And if you're married and you're married to a believer in Christ, you can make, put his name here. And then y'all both have that oneness that comes in both being in Christ together. For you guys, you got you got guys, you gals out there that are single, your name could still be here. And in your Christian friends, they're going to be here because it affects all of our relationships. Um, and that's why you have just that connection with others that are in Christ that you don't have with other people that don't know him. And that should encourage us to share the good news of Christ with others so that they too can have that oneness with the Lord and the oneness with each other. Now, once God saves you, he does not leave you on your own to figure out how to walk in this new life with him. He has provided everything necessary for your sanctification. John Piper, in his podcast, What Every Marriage Needs Most, shares this truth. My spouse's greatest need is my personal holiness, which is only possible through the atonement of Jesus and the living spirit of God inside me. And I know we're not at tables today, but we're going to have a little time for group discussion. So y'all just kind of gather where it's most natural in a few minutes uh, to, have, to have some discussion with each other. Because in your small groups, I want you just to think about what is growing in personal holiness? You know, what is sanctification? Kind of work up, brainstorm and work up 
kind of a working definition in your group of that. And then I want you to share with one another how you personally are growing in uh, holiness with the Lord. And if you're married, how you're growing in holiness with your spouse. And we'll have, you know, I'll tell you when time's up. But if you'll just right now kind of get, just make little groups and just have some fun, you know, sharing and talking with one another about this topic of sanctification. Okay, ladies, can you wrap it up in just maybe 30 more seconds? Okay. Um, I know your discussions were fruitful. And um, um, I know that you learned from one another during that. But in this process of sanctification, you will grow in oneness with Christ and you will grow in oneness together. So here we are, growing in oneness with God through sanctification and look what happens it automatically brings you closer together in oneness with your spouse I think the one thing I want to share with you in the process of sanctification is that thing that my mother told me about don't marry a man thinking that you can change him. And I found very quickly as a young married, married uh, woman that it was so much better to change, to bring about change in my husband by praying for him than anything else. Danny calls it, he'll come to me and he'll say, you're sticking the Holy Spirit on me again, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and all I can tell you is the Holy Spirit does a whole lot better job than what we could ever do so if there is change you start praying about it and you ask the Holy Spirit to bring about those changes in your husband and in yourself so I want to ask you today are you growing in your personal holiness are you sharing God's word with your spouse or a friend or a family member are you praying together? Are you committed and serving in the local church? Are you worshiping and praising God? Are you letting the Holy Spirit lead you in the daily habitual practice of repentance, confession, and forgiveness? Okay, Jennifer, will you show the picture now? There we are. I thought y'all needed maybe a light moment at this point in the talk. But um, there, there we are. Shocking, is it not? 
there's been a lot of change. <laughs> what is visible in our wedding picture is the change resulting from the aging process. <laughs> but the Bible talks about an inward change that God does in us. Okay, thank you, Jennifer. <laughs> I don't want that to be a distraction. <laughs> uh, therefore, we do not lose heart. Though our outer person is wasting away, yet our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. It is this inward change, a heart change, that results in the outward manifestation of being more like Christ in our marriages. And so, we're going to add a heart to our diagram. Because we're talking about making our hearts look more like Christ's hearts. In closing, Danny and I have recently come through a season of light and momentary troubles. But I must confess, it did not seem light or momentary while going through it. It was a season of brokenness in our lives brought on by the increasing demands of providing care my mother. She passed away one year ago this past September and yesterday was her birthday. She would have she turned 99 years old in earthly years. I don't know how to convert that into heavenly years. <laughs> During the last two years of my mother's life, after suffering a stroke which rapidly accelerated her dementia, Danny and I were called by God to lay down our lives for my mom, to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus in her daily care to suffer with her while her body wasted away, both physically and mentally. It was hard and very painful. But during that time, Danny and I experienced such oneness in Christ together. Our prayer life deepened. There was a greater dependency on the Lord and our hearts were humbled. At no other time in our married life have I been better loved or served by my husband. It was a season where God was doing his work of personal holiness in our lives. About a decade ago, I read a quote by Martin Luther. He said, the Christian life is a life of repentance. And I thought to myself, I wouldn't have described the Christian life that way. 
But I knew in my spirit that it was truth. Luther was saying that repentance is the way we make progress in the Christian life. Indeed, pervasive, all-of-life repentance is the best sign that we are growing deeply and rapidly into the character of Jesus. During those years of caring for my mother, I had to practice repentance habitually, daily, moment by moment, because many times my heart was not right towards my mother, it was not right towards my Lord, and it wasn't right towards myself. I hated what was happening to my mother, and I hated I could not fix it. I needed Jesus to tune my heart to be able to sing his praise through his kindness of repentance. True repentance is not a matter of trying harder or doing better. Repentance is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, convicting us of sin, breaking our heart over sin, producing an inward change in thinking about sin that results in turning back to God and that produces the outward change of obedience in our life. Without the Holy Spirit, we would not repent. The truly repentant forsake their sin and rely on God for the power to live a new life. Learning to repent is necessary for growth in personal holiness, for oneness with God, and to experience oneness in marriage. In a season of brokenness, much of the time, it does not feel like transformation is taking place. But God is changing our hearts by forcing us to depend more on him and teaching us to hope in Jesus. Practicing repentance will lead to deep joy as we learn to hate sin and love our Savior more. Confession and forgiveness accompany a repentant heart. And so, I hope maybe this came out of some of your discussion, but we have to repent, which leads to confess, which leads to us being able to forgive. Anybody remember what 1 John 1, 9 says about confession? Hmm? That's one we all should have down. Anybody? If we confess with our mouth, what? He is faithful and just to what? To cleanse us of our sins? Forgive us. All right, I didn't write that one down. I thought we'd have that one. Maybe that should be our first memory verse. Um, But as you confess and you feel God's forgiveness in you, then that empowers you and enables you to forgive others. Um, 
So perhaps there are women here today in a season of brokenness, whether it be in your singleness, your marriage, widowhood, childbearing years, <laughs> parenting a rebellious child, working an unfulfilling job, caring for an aged parent, or facing the death of a loved one. Life is filled with seasons of brokenness, and God allows them in our lives for good and for his glory. Listen to these words of our Savior from Psalms 34, 18, and hear his heart. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. God does not despise a broken and contrite heart, and he restores and strengthens those who repent and turn to Christ in faith. Only Jesus can transform our hearts to be like his heart, bringing joy and restoration in our relationship with others. Only Jesus can heal our brokenness and give us the oneness that we long for in our marriages. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for this opportunity to share with these dear precious women today because a repentant heart loves to tell of your ways, Lord. Give us the courage to let you examine our hearts. We will give you all the praise, honor, and glory for changing our hearts to be more like your heart. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Good morning, friends. Well, I'm uh, rounding third base with you. We're headed home um, on the practical implications and how we live out the gospel in our marriages, our earthly marriages. Um, but let me just take a moment to pray real quick, and then I'm going to kind of tie some things back into what Emily and Debbie have already said, and then we'll, um, we'll round third and head home. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this um, time together. Most importantly, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for providing a way for us to be at the marriage feast of the Lamb with you forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, it's really amazing. First of all, let me say that Emily and Debbie and I did not talk about these talks for better or for worse. Bad idea, bad planning. But the Lord did an amazing work in what he put together. So um, actually, the way I'm going to start is kind of how Debbie started. Um, well, actually, two caveats first. One, um, due to time, I am not going to read most of the scripture references that I have in my talk. So I'm going to be just throwing references at you, write them down, and read them later. Also, um, a couple of the stop and do's, we're not going to stop and do. So y'all just take notes, do them later, get together with a, um, a fellow believer and discuss these things um, when you have time. Also, this talk is not all my own. Clearly, it's um, the Lord has worked in me and through me to put it together, but I sent out text messages asking for prayer and wisdom to a lot of friends when I was prepping this talk. Because I know the practical outworkings of marriage are, um, they can be very personality specific. And I am married to one man. 
and you have my personality and Steven's personality, and they are very different than Connor and Emily's personality or Brad and Aaron's. Or So I just wanted some feedback from other people about how do you live out the gospel in your marriage with the two personalities that the Lord has put together in your home. So anyway, I'm not going to bring all those um, to your attention, but just know that the Lord has brought bits and pieces from other people into this talk that I pray will be fruitful for you guys. So um, anyway, I'm gonna, we're going to cut to the heart first, which is what is your motivation for having a good marriage? Um, do you want a gold star? Do you want to be able to say, I succeeded in my marriage? Do you want to prove others wrong? Someone back in the day was like, oh, you'll never make it. You and this guy, it's not going to work out. Um, are you trying to make your parents proud of you? Are you, um, do you think that a great marriage is a fun marriage, and that seems like the easiest and best way to get through life? Just let's take a moment and check our hearts, and what are we seeking as we say we want a good marriage? And what does God say a good marriage is? God's goals for your marriage, I would guess, may be different than the goals you had entering your marriage. Now, prayerfully, if you've been in the local church and you're growing as a believer, then your goals hopefully are lining up with his goals. But let's just um, check real quick. So God's goals for our marriages, one, are to foreshadow the perfect marriage between Christ and the church, which, as Emily and Debbie have both reiterated to us this morning, that is for all believers, that regardless of whether or not you have an earthly marriage. And I'll be honest, I think what a gift for someone who has never been, I don't want to say, I'm going to say it, scarred by earthly marriage, or like had the negative experience of an earth that can come within an earthly marriage, um, that you will um, not be projecting upon God maybe some of your earthly experiences in marriage as you look toward that. So singleness can be a huge blessing, and I want you to see it as that. Now, clearly the Lord has given marriage also as a blessing, but our, the primary purpose of it is to mirror him and his relationship with his church. And frankly, none of our husbands are going to do it perfectly. So if you are single, you're not having that distraction. Um, but if you are married, also realize, like, your husband is never going to do it perfectly. So do not put that expectation on him. And we'll get to more of that here in a minute. Um, but the per God's purposes for our marriage are to foreshadow the perfect marriage between Christ, Christ and the church, to um, put the gospel on display for others in all the parts and meanings that come with the gospel, and so that you may honor God more so together than apart, pointing others towards him, which is being sanctified together which when Debbie said something about we were going to do a fun little exercise defining sanctification or talking about sanctification, I looked at Aaron and Emily and I was like, sanctification is not fun in my world. Like I just this week was having conversations with someone about how it feels like a rock hammer and a massive chisel all the time. So anyway, I know that is not how the Lord intends for it to be. And that is a reflection of the posture of my heart many times. It's that I don't really want sanctification. So we need to recheck in our purposes um, of seeking to have a good marriage or a godly marriage. It is really for the purpose of sanctification. 
And so anyway, and that is one thing that really Debbie hit on so well early on when she uh, gave us that quote from John Piper. So basically, you can kind of think of this talk as in two sections, well, three, I guess. So we've had the intro, and then now this first section is for all believers. And what I want you to understand is the fact that we are, as believers, called to, um, to live lives that honor the Lord regardless of our station in life. So she is exactly right in that first and foremost, ladies, we have to be seeking the Lord and honoring him in personal sanctification. Otherwise, our marriage, I can give you all the practical tips on being a good wife and, you know, cooking this fantastic meal for your husband and being willing to serve. If your heart's not in the right place and you're not seeking to honor the Lord, every bit of the rest of this is worthless. So um, this first group is really towards all of us who are believers. First and foremost, worship the Lord. He has given you life, and he has given you the station of life you are in. He is sovereign, and this is what is best for you, whether it's in a season of good and plenty or hard and few. Your job, if you are a believer, is to glorify him, either alongside of or in spite of your spouse and his walk with the Lord. Your responsibility is to praise God above all, trust him, and live for him. A way to um, kind of orient your heart is to that is to really pray every day that your highest affection and your utmost attention would be toward God. Um, so some of the same scriptures that have been um, discussed before, but um, very similar to uh, the Colossians 1:17 one that Debbie wrote up here is Romans 11:36. Everything is from him through him, and to him. And that needs to be the basis um, of all of our days. So a practical way this works itself out in worshiping the Lord in marriage is to thank the Lord for your spouse daily. Get specific with traits and gifts that uh, the Lord has given to your spouse. And we'll talk about this more in just a second. Praise the Lord through prayer with your spouse. Remember, every gift to you in your spouse is actually from God. He is using your spouse as a delivery agent. So your spouse is a gift. He is not the giver. Actively worship with the local church, with or without your spouse. The Lord has called you as a believer to do this. If you're in a season where your spouse is not going or your spouse is not willing or you're not married, it doesn't matter. The Lord has called each of us to worship with the local body of believers. Secondly, be in the word daily. It teaches us more about God. How to write, it actually teaches us everything about God. Um, it teaches us how to rightly worship Him and how to live for Him and love Him. A scripture that I just keep coming back to, and I say before the Lord takes me from this earth, I want to memorize is Psalm 119. Um, it may take me the rest of the days on this earth. But anyway, I would just encourage you to make um, reading Psalm 119 a part of your monthly quiet time, like just once a month, put that on your list to do. It regrounds us in the importance of his word, the truths of his word, the goodness of his word. And it doesn't mean that you have to read the whole thing every time. Like I read it in sections. It's the longest chapter in the Bible, in case you don't know that. Um, but it is just a gift and it helps the Lord grow in you an affection for his word as a whole. Um, next uh, scriptures, Deuteronomy 6.5 and Matthew 22.37. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself, Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine. Your spouse is your closest neighbor you have. So that is not just Haley and Courtney who live next door to each other. <laughs> I have been blessed to live next door to one of my best friends for the last, I don't know, almost 18 years now. Um, anyway, that is your neighbor's are people out there and near you, but your spouse is your neighbor, and please see them that way. Um, ask the Lord to grow you in the fruit of the Spirit and graciousness within your home. Galatians 5, 22 and 23, to make you more Christ-like for his glory. I promise you are much easier to live with if you are growing in the fruit of the Spirit. Ask the Lord to grow you in faithfulness and obedience to him in all things. Be in the word together with your spouse or, and or talk about what the Lord is teaching you individually in your study or through sermons and small groups. So it can look different in different seasons. When um, Several people have heard me say this before, but when my kids were little, I had Bibles stationed in different places throughout the home because having any sort of like concentrated, long, quiet time, it was a sure thing that Satan was about to bring a screaming kid in or milk was about to get spilled or whatever. So I would keep a Bible on the back of the toilet. I kept a Bible in my kitchen open. And so those were the stations where I was mostly throughout the day. Um, in the same way, I would encourage you to be okay with your time and the word with your spouse looking different in different seasons. Sometimes it may be that you're going through a study together. Sometimes it may be that you're just talking about what you're each individually doing. One helpful hint that another church member gave me was when she and her husband are each discipling, they choose the same study to disciple the people that they are discipling. So like if they're discipling, whatever, they're both going through the book of Philippians at this point. And so it's just a great way to have something to talk about together, even if you're doing ministry separately. And the Lord uses those discussions about his word to grow them together. All right, so we have been through worship the Lord be in the word, and now we're going to talk about prayer. So pray for your marriage. Pray for your marriage to be God-honoring, for you to steer clear of adultery, to be a joy and a blessing to those around you, to reflect covenant love and commitment to a world that has no category for such a thing. Um, and I'll talk about this more in a minute, but just know that even if your marriage is hard, your marriage is reflecting the gospel to a watching world just by y'all staying committed. And I realize that is only through prayer in a lot of seasons. But just be encouraged that the Lord is using you, even if your marriage is really hard. Pray for your husband. And a couple of people have mentioned this, but remember, it is God's job through the Holy Spirit to change your spouse. Pray for this and demonstrate godliness and love to him. It is not your job to change your spouse. You are not the Holy Spirit. You are an agent of change the Lord can use, but remember what Scripture says. It is the kindness of the Lord that leads to repentance. So, as my mom used to say, you get a lot more flies with honey than you do with vinegar. So, being sweet and kind, but speaking the truth in love, not being a nagging wife, like Emily read to us earlier. So that is not helpful for anyone. Um, pray for marriages around you. Y'all, you have no idea what a force for the Lord this is. Um, 
I have a group of families that are on my my weekly uh, rotation to pray for. And I mean, I pray specifically for their marriages every Monday. There's four families. And then I have another day of the week that I pray for marriages in crisis. I have another day of the week that I generally just pray for the marriages of UBC because I know that Satan would love nothing more than to destroy marriages within the church because I think just as Debbie and um, Emily said earlier, like, well, especially loved Emily's use of the Ray Ortland quote about how marriage just displays the gospel in its entirety to a watching world. So we just have to be especially in prayer for those things. One other uh, point in, in prayer is to pray for your children's current or future marriages. Now, most of y'all know I have my oldest one who's been dating someone pretty seriously for a while. There is no announcement, no information I have. But it has just brought a keen awareness to my mind that I need to be praying for my children's future spouses or their futures without a spouse, whatever the Lord may grant to them. Um, and that, that the primary purpose of praying for that is that the Lord may use their marriage, if he so gives them one, for his glory and not necessarily for their happiness. I pray they will have happy marriages, but that is not the point of marriage. So um, another little, this is it's not really necessarily the prayer part of it, but I mean, y'all know marriage, I mean, weddings are so expensive. It is unbelievable to me. I mean, I, <laughs> Aaron's laughing and she's like, she knows that's where my mind goes. Okay, okay. That, yes, and I can honestly remember whenever we started having kids, I was like, two boys, all right. Got to pick two rehearsal dinners, maybe help out with honeymoons, and then a wedding at the end of it all. Anyway, um, all that to say, someone once told us earlier when we were, I don't know if it was a marriage retreat or something, but basically like, what if you took, if you're able to help your kids with the expense of a wedding, what if you reduced that budget a little bit and you said, hey, we're willing to pay this much right now for your wedding and we're willing to put this much aside to help you in your marriage later. That means financially helping them pay for marriage conferences, helping them get away when you're in those young years, you have no money, all you're paying for is diapers and baby food, and you seriously just want to go out to dinner. All those things, like use the resources that the Lord has given you to be a blessing to other people in their marriages, which may include your children, or other people's children. Um, I will tell you, so like I see Courtney or Osborne do this. She did not know I was about to call her out. Um, but I see her do this when she's helping keep other kids. So spouses can go out on dates or spouses can travel together. That is a huge deal. Um, Caroline Pinnock did this for us when our kids were younger. I mean, it is such a gift that the Lord gives for the whole body to be involved in the marriages of others. So do that through prayer. Do that in use of your resources, whether it's financial or your time. So sorry to hope I didn't embarrass you, Courtney. Um, all right, next thing that is kind of in the bigger category. Of, this is the last thing, really, in the all believers um, category. In, I want to talk about identity for a minute. First and foremost... If you're a believer, well, one, you are created in God's image, whether you're a believer or not. And so you are from the Lord God who made heaven and earth. And he created you because he loves you and he wanted to. He did not have to create you. 
There's no obligation for him to have created any of us, but he chose you and he chose to bring you to this earth because he wanted you, he loves you, and he thought that this earth would be blessed by you. So your identity needs to be grounded in that first and foremost. Your identity is not in your spouse. It is not in your status as a single. It is not in your motherhood. It is in no other thing other than that you are a daughter of the king, of the God of the world who chose to create you. And let that sink in and let you operate from a place of freedom. You want to honor and serve your family and your friends and those around you, but ultimately, the Lord loves you. You're not trying to please all these other people to earn your place in this world. The Lord has created you and then bought you with a price in spite of your sinfulness. So rest in who you are, not in striving to be someone else. The Lord has made you, and if you are seeking him and growing in sanctification, that is right where you need to be. So rest in that. Um, just a little probing question. This is a to answer later, discuss later with someone. How can you be prone to place your identity in your spouse or in other people how do you put your spouse on a pedestal and how do you spend your time seeking your spouse's approval in unhealthy ways? That is not to say we should not be serving our spouses in ways that are honoring and helpful and encouraging to them. Stephen hates coconut. If I made him the best, well, I don't like it either, but if I made him the best coconut cream pie for his birthday. That's just not loving and serving. That's just kind of being a punk. So all that to say, I'm not talking about we shouldn't be doing things that, you know, bring joy and delight to our spouse that maybe they end up praising us for. But that shouldn't, that is not our motivation. Our motivation is not seeking praise and honor from them. Scripture says, as uh, Emily read this morning, that a, um, a noble wife is like precious jewels to her husband. So it, there is praise and there are um, accolades for honoring and being a godly wife, but our motivation should be to honor the Lord in all that we do and not seeking the praise of man. Okay, um, y'all, I just had this note when I was talking, thinking about identity and that we're a daughter of God, I do not, I'm talking obviously there about like our spiritual identity, um, mental and social things, but obviously, why do old people start looking alike? Why do old married people start looking alike? Why does our physical identity literally start changing? I do not understand this, but I know it happens. Anyway, y'all, if I start growing a massive beard and look like Stephen when I'm 80, someone help me out. Okay, um, also in relation to your identity, just realize that people you hang around with are very influential on you. So make sure you are surrounding yourself with people who encourage you as a believer and to be a godly, faithful wife. All right, now I'm going to shift the focus to primarily things that are related to marriage, but they are still applicable um, to everyone as a believer. So um, in most instances... When you get married, neither you nor your spouse have ever been married before. 
then certainly, even if it is a second marriage or a later life marriage, you've certainly not been married in the stage of life you are currently in. Everyone is in new territory. Be gracious. Every day, you're in new territory. So go in to your marriage prepared to be gracious. Go into each day asking the Lord to prepare your heart to be gracious to your spouse. I do have to confess, in uh, some not-so-gracious moments between me and Stephen Martin, I have yelled, Why are we still fighting about the same things? I mean, communication is our downfall. And it is not for lack of words. <laughs> it is lack of clarity in words and lack of uh, too much emotional charge, primarily, in my words. But anyway, all that to say, um, I'm not saying we don't get in ruts and repeat the same things, but the fact is the circumstances are different most every time. So if we seek to have a heart of graciousness from the Lord, it really goes a long way. Um, and I think especially those first few years of marriage, when we have these unreasonable, crazy expectations of all the ways our husbands are going to lead us spiritually and all these ways that he is going to, you know, even if you're not like a gifts person, he's going to bring you flowers or whatever your expectations are. Y'all, he's never done this before. He doesn't know. And 80% of men have not had a strong role model before them as a good husband and father. So they don't have a clue. And frankly, you don't have a clue. We didn't have a clue either. So, okay. Um, all right, we're on number six, I think. You are a sinner married to a sinner, in case you haven't noticed. Um, there are certain things that pop up when I think about this, but um, I will say one of the ladies in our church, she was very quick to say, I think it's important that we are confessing our sin to our spouse regularly and um, early on in our marriage. And I was like, ooh, that is so true. Um, the earlier you start that pattern of confessing your sin and asking each other to pray for, um, for fighting sin and temptation in your marriage, the easier it is. If you wait years into your marriage to start that pattern, how hard? I mean, they know you're a sinner. You know they're a sinner. But no one wants to, like, drag out all the dirty. Um, we all like to pretend we've got a little more of it covered up. So, anyway... I just thought that was a really great piece of encouragement to start that early on in your marriage. Um, also want to say, under the category of being a sinner married to a sinner, if you're in a situation where the sin against you is abuse, get help. You're, I'm no marriage counselor at all. And we are blessed in this church to have elders who really have a heart for women and seeing women in supportive, healthy marriages. Go to our elders if you are in a bad place. If you're listening to this via podcast and you don't know where to go or where to turn, go to a gospel teaching church that has good elders. They will help you. No one ever thinks that marriage is designed as a trap for women to be injured or hurt on a repetitive basis. Marriage is hard. Marriage is sanctifying. God does not say that we are to sit in abusive marriages and just endure. See your elders. Um, in being married to a sinner, going back to this, um, be gracious to your spouse, yet fight temptation and sin in your own life regularly. 
Ask others to pray for you. Confess your sin to your spouse and to a trusted friend. Look at the plank in your own eye before bringing up the speck in his. Be honest and loving. And once again, it is not your job to fix your spouse or say enough convicting things to pray him and to guilt him into change. It will fail. Do not be the nagging wife. Pray, then speak the truth in love and trust the Holy Spirit to work. And I say trust the Holy Spirit to work in his timing. Sometimes we may pray for years and years for things and not see the change that we think we should see. It is not our timing, ladies, and it is not our world. It is the Lord's world, and we have no idea what all the moving pieces are and the parts are that we cannot see. And I understand it gets weary, but bring other ladies alongside of you, and I can tell you that praying for your spouse works. I have seen it in my own marriage. I have seen it in several marriages around us. Leading, obviously, from um, being a sinner married to a sinner, let's move to the topic of conflict quickly. It is Satan's goal to separate you and cause problems within your marriage. Remember who the enemy is. It is not your spouse. The enemy is Satan. Direct your prayers and frustrations accordingly. Also know, and I think everyone knows this, but conflict is normal in marriage, but it does not have to be common or frequent in your marriage. Make gracious conflict resolution normal. Write these scriptures down to um, look up later. But Romans 12, 18 and 19. Ephesians 4, 26. Colossians 3, 13. I'll confess to you guys, when conflict starts in our, our marriage, my first response is, I'm mad at Stephen for being mad. I'm like, well, that's dumb. Why would you get frustrated over that? And then I'm, so you can see where the communication problem starts right there. Um, so like, I don't even want to deal with whatever the issue is. I want to deal with the fact that like, he's got his panties in a wad about something that he should not have his panties in a wad about. So it's always great if you can get on the same page with your spouse about who the true enemy is in any marriage or any relationship, and then take a moment, stop and breathe, sit down and pray either with or without your spouse, pray for yourself and for your spouse before addressing conflict resolution I can promise it will go a thousand times better. Matthew 18 is the uh, cornerstone conflict resolution approach in Scripture, which means it applies to your spouse just as it applies in any other situation. Approach your brother, husband, with an offense against you. If you are offended, pray and ask the Lord to help you whether or not you should be offended. Sometimes we're offended and we shouldn't be. Sometimes they're just speaking the truth in love, and we need to be ready to receive it. Okay, here's a few quick questions. I'm going to try to go through them slowly just so you have enough time to write them down, um, but we're not going to really go into much more detail about them. Is your spouse in sin? If you're offended, here's some questions to ask yourself. Is your spouse in sin that is clearly opposed in Scripture? That's... Pretty intense conflict resolution, if so. Are you offended due to a personal preference? Now, this is a different level of discussion in a marital relationship than in a church relationship. You know, we talk about in the local church, don't get offended when things are not done um, 
in a manner of your personal preference. We talk about styles of worship. We talk about the brand of coffee or whether or not to have coffee or pews or chairs or whatever you want to talk about. Those are all matters of personal preference. Back to my example earlier about if I constantly make a coconut cream pie for Stephen Martin on his birthday, that is not his personal preference. That is a matter of conflict within a marriage. It's just wrong to do. I mean, it's just wrong. So think about whether your offense is personal preference. If it is, um, well, if it is something that is personal preference, ask yourself, do I need to die to this? Or is this personal preference for a reason? And do we need to have better conversation about it? And do I need to just express to my spouse, this is really important to me, and here's why. He may be thinking, she always says this, it's so annoying. I don't even understand why she wants it this way. Like, literally, you come from two different backgrounds. There, he has his own reasons for thinking it's better to do it this way, and you have your reasons for thinking it's better to do it this other way. So, as Stephen says, there are not ways to set up a home listed in scripture. It does not tell you where the silverware goes in the kitchen, but I will tell you where the silverware goes in the kitchen. And it's because that's how I grew up. And this is where the silverware goes. He grew up differently. The silverware goes over here in his mind. He says, there is one thing we should all agree on. And that's the toilet paper rolls over on the top. So anyway, if that, always over the top. He says that should have been in scripture, but it's not. Um, discussions of conflict resolution do not have to be emotional. So check your emotions. They may be emotional, but they do not have to be so intentionally emotional that we get lost in the emotion rather than the issue at hand. Please understand that your spouse's job is not to please you in all their decisions, but rather to love you well and point you to Christ. Do you have a culture of compromise and service to each other within your marriage? Or do you have a culture of selfishness? When conflict arises, listen, pray, seek to understand, and resolve. Try to not address conflict in a public setting. That may mean you need to go to the car for a moment. Also, don't play the comparison game. You can always say, well, their marriage, they never fight. You never see them arguing, whatever. Well, maybe they've just got the don't do conflict in public thing down. There is dirt and dirty laundry in every marriage. And every marriage has conflict. But it is a skill to learn how to resolve conflict well. And it is a gift to your own marriage. And it is a gift to the children and other families within your home. Stephen and I were blessed enough to be um, friends with a young married couple before we were even married, before we were even dating, that they just had a bunch of college kids in their home all the time. And they would argue and do conflict resolution in front of us. And it was awkward, but a gift. Because honestly, Stephen comes from a divorced family. I grew up in a family that never did conflict in front of anyone. It was always behind closed doors. And there was a fair amount of it. But the gift of knowing how to resolve conflict with your spouse in loving ways, it is just something that we don't see modeled a whole lot. And you have the gift to change that in your own home. Now, I'm not saying have a knockdown drag out. I'm not saying have an emotionally charged argument in front of your children where your children are nervous or they're like, are my parents going to make it? What's happening here? 
Um, but Stephen and I have made a point to even if an emotionally charged discussion starts in front of our children, to make sure if we've had needed to, you know, separate or go from a, to a different space and resolve it and come back, that they know it's been resolved and they know that our home is stable and they know that conflict is resolvable and it is resolvable in a peaceful and good, forward-moving, hopefully increasingly God-honoring manner. Are you willing to initiate resolution? That means being the first to humble yourself, confess sin, and say that you're sorry. Be honest, be kind, be quick to forgive. Are you teachable and willing and desiring to be sanctified? What are the repetitive areas within your marriage that show conflict? Address these, but don't be beat down by them. Are you willing to seek counseling? It is great to seek counseling. I know there was a stigma, there has been a stigma for a long time. Praise the Lord, I feel like that is going away. Um, we tell all the couples that we do premarital counseling with that premarital counseling is great. Postmarital counseling, way better. Premarital counseling is like Charlie Brown's teacher. Wah, 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 wah. You're like, okay, great, I'll take note. And then you don't even know what they're talking about until you get in the marriage and you're like, oh my word, this is what they meant. How do we get out of this? Um, so anyway, be willing to call and ask for help, whether it's to the pastor who married you, to it's another, it's the elders in your church. Reach out. Be open about marital struggles with another trusted Christian couple friend. People want to help and see the gospel um, honored in marriages. Um, I'm going to give you a resource name. Many of y'all have heard me talk about this book. I have a love-hate relationship with it. Paul Tripp, War of Words. I literally love and hate this book. It was so convicting to me, and I've never spent more time just in detail reading a book slowly. And it's just talking about the way we use our words. I can be very quick to speak, sometimes in an emotionally charged manner. And it's just not helpful. And how every... The Lord has given us words to use and to be a blessing with those words. The book is not about marriage. It, you, it addresses marriage, but it's really just about how all of our words are meant to be a blessing from the Lord or blessing, yeah, from the Lord to other people. So anyway, put that on your list to read. And I'm sorry <laughs> when you read it. <laughs> okay, commitment. If you are married, believer to believer, there is no real cause for divorce. Caveat, if you're in an abusive relationship, get help. The Lord gives permissions for divorce, but that was never his design or original goal. Um, be committed. If you're married, it is who you are supposed to be married to. Do not let Satan drag in this. Maybe I screwed up. Maybe I didn't hear what I thought I should have heard. Maybe it should have been somebody different. No, if you are married and you're believers, I can promise you're both in the right place. Even if you're not both believers, the Lord addresses that in Scripture, and I'll give you those references in just a moment. So, um, however, there are times in marriage when commitment is hard, and lots of marriages feel like they spend a lot of their time living out commitment rather than enjoying marriage. 
We have multiple couple friends who are committed to the Lord and to each other, even though they have struggled many, many years in their marriage. However, their commitment and endurance is an encouragement to us in many ways, especially for, to those who may not experience disruptions or significant conflict in your marriage regularly. It may feel like you're hit by a train whenever you do have difficulties in your marriage. Look to those couples who have persevered that you know marriage has not been easy for them. Just thank the Lord for his faithfulness to us and his covenant commitment to us, and then reflect that to the world. Don't let Satan get to you. Remember who the enemy is. 1 Corinthians 7 gives a lot of... Um, well, read 1 Corinthians 7. It talks about um, commitment within marriage even when you have one party who's not a believer, and it looks at it from both sides. So I'll just leave that there. Um, I had a friend who responded to me when we were talking about um, this talk and commitment, and she just said she felt like old love is better than new love, she said. So you can't get to old love if you're not committed. She said it is deeper, it's richer, it ripens, and you get more, everyone becomes more understood, and the marriage becomes more meaningful over time. But if you bail on commitment, you'll never experience these blessings. This also brings freedom to offer grace and point each other to Jesus. You're in it for the long haul. This is not a, oh my gosh, if I did this, it's over. If you're in it for the long haul, the Lord will bless you. Outserve one another in marriage. Moving on. Oh gosh, y'all, I'm about to roll through this at lightning speed. Um, all right, Philippians 2.3. Think of others as better than yourself. Be the helpmate you were created to be. Do chores that he normally does. Do laundry, cooking, make his cup of coffee. Go run an errand for him. Outserve one another. This is a picture of Christ laying down his life for his bride. We're to serve our spouses. Serve even your unworthy, sinning husband who left his underwear in the floor again. That is what Christ does for you. One servant-hearted spouse can really motivate another not-so-servant-hearted spouse to become more servant-hearted. This is from a church member, it was not me. She said, my husband is naturally a servant. I am not, but watching him serve me pushes me toward more Christ-likeness and uh, more willingness to serve. All right, um, Colossians 3.17, let all you do be done as unto the Lord. A um, couple of quick examples. Uh, early on in our marriage, Stephen had Fridays off, and he cleaned our house every Friday so that he knew I could relax. Because if when I came home on Friday, I could not relax on Saturday until the house was clean. So he would give up his days off on Fridays to clean our house. It was an amazing gift and testimony to me of the Lord's servant-heartedness. Also, folding clothes. Y'all, this would be too much information, but Stephen, we tag-team folding clothes in our house. Y'all, he folds my underwear with such precision. I don't even care, but he is, I don't fold my underwear. It goes in the drawer. He folds it with such neatness and excellence. Like, he just wants to serve well. I know, y'all. Sorry. Too much information. I told you. So how can you grow in serving? This means dying to yourself and putting away selfishness. Stop and pray when you don't want to serve. Ask God to give you a heart for serving. And remember and recognize you were raised in different places with different families. 
and there's a lot of room for compromise. Serve together in your home. So we've said serving one another. Now we're at serving together. Serve on, remember, you are on the same team. Point others in your life to Jesus. That is the whole goal of your team. Serve your kids, family, friends, church members. Plan together how to do that through meals, family devos, family book studies, which we just did our first one with two of the kids in the house. That was interesting and fun. But anyway, things, certain things are age appropriate. Make sure you remember you're on the same general life team when it comes to finances, chores, daily function. Your teammates to make this family work and what a gift it is to have each other. Make your house a home. Serve together in hospitality, creating a place of warmth, encouragement, and love for the outside world. Serve your church. Try serving together in a certain ministry or, as I mentioned earlier, when discipling other members, use the same study so you can discuss it. Serve your extended family and friends. Y'all, the holidays are coming. Sometimes serving our close family is the hardest hospitality there is. Some of you in this room, we've had this discussion. But it is putting the gospel on display. So pray up, be in the word, and serve with excellence, and put the love of Christ on display together. Okay, this is one of the things that we're going to just briefly go through real quick, but I want you to do later. What do you love about your spouse? I want you to list five personality traits and or character qualities you love about your spouse before you walk back in the door today at your house. So if you got to sit in the garage, whatever you got to do before you walk back in the door, do this, okay? Then go home and tell your spouse the things that you are thankful to God for in him. Make this a regular practice in your marriage. I have a friend who makes this a very regular part of her marriage, and she said it really helps cut down on the frustration and the bitterness that she can let creep in. So, um, okay, your spouse may or may not be your earthly best friend. It's fine if you want to work towards that goal. However, no, that goal is stated nowhere in the Bible. God has designed marriage to be a safe and wonderful relationship, pointing each other toward Christ, not so you can have some blissful friendship dancing your way down the road. Now, it's great if it works out that way, but that is not God's goal for your marriage. He, most importantly, even if he's not, even if he is your best friend, he should not be, well, let me back that up. He should not be your best friend. And I realize this is going to be a cheesy statement, God should be your best friend. Your spouse is human. He will fail you. He will do some stupid thing on a Thursday afternoon when you have a fabulous date planned for Thursday night, and it will wreck the whole night. Even if it's not something that dramatic, he is never going to live up to all the expectations you have of him that he shouldn't even be trying to live up to. Trust the Lord with your most intimate thoughts, with your most intimate struggles, the Lord should be your best friend. Your spouse should not be your only friend. Do you have good female friends? I mean really, really good female friends. Be that to others and find those for yourself. The goal, again, is to push each other toward Jesus. You'll be a better wife if you have a couple of good, deep, other healthy friendships. In those friendships and other friendships, do not husband bash. 
This week, I was having a conversation with another friend. She knew I was working on this talk. We had not had this specific conversation. And she was like, how do I stop my friends from talking negatively about their husbands? She's like, it's not healthy for me, and it's not healthy for them. Just, it is okay to talk about a struggle with your spouse after you have prayed about it and discussed it with your spouse, and you and your spouse have agreed you're going to a trusted friend to ask for prayer or talk about it. Do not husband bash. Scriptures show that friendship is important. All right, get ready to write, y'all. This must mean that relationships outside of marriage are important. Proverbs 18.24, Proverbs 17.17, Job 42.10, Job 6.14, Proverbs 27.10. Look these up. Clearly the Lord, very, uh, the Lord values good, healthy, strong friendships. If he thought these passages didn't apply to married people, he would have said so. What are the regular and frequent ways you develop close relationships with other women? Just a few quick thoughts. Coffees, lunches, go on a walk, walk Wilson Park, go on trips, have a regular walking pattern with another friend, do a group Bible study. What are the fun things you do with other women? If you are not doing these things, just ask yourself, am I expecting my spouse to meet all of my emotional and social needs? This is not healthy. On the flip side of that, if you and your spouse are very close and have a friendship, a very strong friendship, verbal and emotional vomit happening regularly is not healthy in any circumstance or relationship. He is not to solve all your problems. He is not the one that you can just let loose and have no self-control with. Our sinfulness will come out enough even when we are trying to exercise self-control. Speak to your husband with grace and love and in ways that you want someone else to speak to your husband. Your husband should never be your idol. He is not meant to be your knight in shining armor, your prince, or your savior. God is to be all of those things. He may use your husband to fill several roles for you, but ultimately it is God's work and it is his role. Your husband's role is to help lead you to Jesus. He is commanded by scripture to make sure you are provided for and he is to be the leader of your home. So if you're a believer, biblically submit to that leadership. Make it a joyful role for him. However, recognize that leadership will not be perfect. Once again, you're a sinner married to a sinner. I see this um, putting our husbands up as an idol as a great problem in the local church. Just be aware of it and uh, ask the Lord to convict you if that is a problem in your own heart. Are you, one way to know this is, do you experience a lot of disappointment if you think, well, he doesn't do this for me, or you're playing the comparison game, or you're like, I wish he would. These are set up by unfounded fantasies of what your marriage would be like, and that is not, those are not God-honoring, nor are they helpful to your spouse. Have in, instead, have intimate conversations with God in your prayer life. I mean, brutally honest conversations with the Lord. Are you worshiping the Lord in the beginning and the end? Be honest with him, but worship and trust the Lord and the Lord alone. He is the only one who will never fail you. A few quick ways to cultivate friendship with your spouse, because it is a goal to develop a, it is a great goal to develop a fun, healthy friendship with your spouse. Just don't let that become a source of worship. Laugh with your spouse. And I will say that is one thing that Stephen and I thank the Lord are gifted at doing. And it's mainly because he's funny, not because I'm funny. 
but um, enjoy hobbies together, whether that's walking, whether it's playing tennis, whether it's doing home projects, do mundane tasks together. Y'all, we're in the stage of life where our kids are gone a lot of the night. We have two still at home, one in school, um, but a lot of nights it's just me and Steven at home. And the other night we're sitting in the living room and each doing something and I was like, let's go clean out the linen closet. And he was like, okay, is that a two-person project? <laughs> I was like, well, yes, because it's hard to fold extra sheets that are really big by myself. And he was like, okay. So anyway, it's a mundane task, but he went upstairs with me, we emptied the linen closet, we got it done, and we laughed and had fun in the midst of it. So anyway, make mundane tasks enjoyable together. Also, develop the interests and the gifts that God has given you as a person. God did not create you and your spouse as a male and female version of the same person. You are different people. He created you that way. Develop the gifts and the talents that he has given you, which may mean that you're spending some time apart in order to do those things. I will tell you, absence makes the heart grow fonder. Do not follow around your spouse like a puppy dog. It's not healthy. Have regular date nights. Or maybe it's just a back porch time. Or maybe it's a gift to, I mean, a run to Walmart together. Just whatever it is, make sure you are spending intentional time alone with your spouse for conversation and for intimacy. Now on to the next topic. So, sex. This is a big thing. Now, I will say, one person I was talking to this week had a great little pun, and I'm going to use it. Some of us need to flesh this out. So, I'll let y'all do the horn. Anyway, but it is true. It is a command in scripture that we are to have sex with our spouse. And it is to be regular. And it is to be, yeah, regular and often. Read those, 1 Corinthians 7, and it will talk about the only reasons for not having sex with your, or the only reason given for not having sex with your spouse is to set aside time for intentional prayer. And then we are commanded to come back together. Y'all, we are not to have long dry seasons of not having sex with our spouse. First, I will say there also can be legitimate health reasons for a break in sex. And just for one example I will give, we had preterm babies. And there were times when the doctor was like, no, like you just can't. You're going to go into labor. And so those sorts. there are other things that can be legitimate reasons for taking Pressing pause on your sexual relationship with your spouse, but do not use health as an excuse that is going against the commands of Scripture. First and foremost, view sex as worship. It is a gift from God. It can be enjoyable and amazing with work in the right context, which the right context is within marriage. That's what's the way Scripture has set the way the Lord has set it up and communicated that to us in Scripture. Be patient. And your husbands say practice a lot. The frequency of sex is something you and your spouse need to discuss and both be comfortable with. If either of you are struggling with a lack of desire, pray about that. Pray for the desire and then check the reasons. Why are you lacking desire? Is it lack of comfort with yourself physically, emotionally? Is it you're too busy? What are the things that are becoming hindrances in your sex life with your spouse. Address these things. I would say once every few months, having sex with your spouse once every few months is not regular, regular enough 
for the vast majority of marriages. Once a week can be a good goal, but it is not doable or necessary for every couple. Talk with your spouse. The most important thing is that you are both on the same page about this. Do your own emotional work to be ready for sex if you need to. Be the one to initiate from time to time. Pray for the emotional and physical feelings, yet trust the Lord in his commandments about sex. Do not be afraid of counseling in this area. There are people who do this in our area, and they do a great job. I know this can be scary, but y'all, deliberately disobeying the Lord and his command to not withhold our bodies from our husbands is also scary. So go to counseling if you need to. Physical intimacy is not just sex. Dance in the kitchen. Hold hands. Kiss him. These are all gifts from the Lord. Don't forget them. The temperature of your sex life can be a gauge thermometer of your marriage. Who are you willing to talk with about this if you're struggling? Your spouse first, then a trusted friend. One church member says a queen bed can encourage more physical activity. I need a king bed. I need some space. Anyway, she also says, or another friend actually said, also walking around your home with fewer clothes on when no one else is there can also spark activity. So, as we've laughed a little bit here, I think laughter is an important part of marriage. So leaving the awkward topic, back to a um, more common one. Find a clean comedian that you both enjoy. Watch his videos on YouTube. Or do something else that spurs um, laughter within your marriage. Laugh at yourself. Some of us really need to hear this. We're all a bunch of screw-ups. Laugh at yourself. Don't laugh at your sin, but just laugh at your own funny quirks. Laugh at the stupid things you say. Be quick to be like, I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have done that. Y'all, I've gotten myself stuck in a kitchen cabinet before trying to put down shelf paper, and I was so mad. It was the first house we were renting as a married couple. Literally, I had backed my rear end in around a corner cabinet, and I could not get out. And it was hilarious, especially to Stephen. Before, it was hilarious to me because I was stuck. But I learned to laugh at myself. I have also been known to put cheese in a cabinet. I eat a lot of cheese. And I get going in a hurry and put things away, and I can get really frustrated when I'm like, Where's the cheese? Who put the, where's the cheese? And I'm like yelling at everyone in the house about where's the cheese. And then somebody's like, uh, mom, I think you put it in the cabinet after you did blah, blah, blah. Oh, right. That was me, not y'all. Okay. In conclusion, I would just say marriage is the ultimate iron sharpening iron as scripture talks about. We are to be making disciples together, bringing glory to the Lord together and being sanctified. Be a faithful believer first and foremost. Then pray and work out your salvation in all areas of your life, including your marriage. Marriage is not something to be worshipped, which our churches can easily do, but it is a tool God has created to show himself to the world, to build a population for his glory, and to keep us humble while sanctifying us for eternity. The Lord is trustworthy. He is sovereign. He is faithful. Let's thank him and love him for all of who he is. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the gift of marriage. Father, thank you for the gift of singleness. Father, we look forward to the day when we are at the feast of the marriage with you. In Jesus' name, amen.